All right, this starts book two of the Psalms, and uh, we're going to read the 42nd Psalm to the chief musicians, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul for you, O God. So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, Where is your God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise, with the multitude that keep a pilgrim feast. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan and from the heights of Hermon, from the hill Mitzar. Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy, as with the breaking of my bones? My enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for allowing us to come here today and to worship in this beautiful place. Thank you for the uh, safety that we've enjoyed from this storm, but we do pray for those that are in the face of it that will be facing it in the next couple days. Lord, you're a wonderful creator, and I pray that our time together will bring you glory and that what I say from the word will also be correct and will be in accordance with your wishes and your will for us. All praise, all glory, and all honor belong to you. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, amen. All right, we got some announcements today. The first one is that, um, I'll get to that one a little bit later. Um, I'll get to that one in a couple minutes. Um, Next week, if anybody is planning on coming next week, or if you know anybody that hasn't come today, um, please tell them that next week is the starting of 10 a.m. We're going to not be meeting at 10.30 anymore, but at 10 o'clock in the morning. And that's because the uh, parking lot will fill up rather quickly with the uh, coming tourist season. And it'll just be easier in the future anyway. Um, of course, I'm always looking for volunteers. When we did this in the afternoons for a year, we had musicians out here. And all of them had their own churches that they went to on Sunday morning. So we haven't had a musician out here except once over the entire year. And so if you know anybody that wants to play music and uh, worship the Lord, please tell them about the beach and that they can come out and uh, uh, play music for us. I'd appreciate that. And, uh, of course, I'm always looking for inviters of others. If you know somebody that would benefit from a sermon out of the Bible. And if you haven't been here before, then uh, you need to be... uh, aware that I don't preach um, life application sermons, but rather out of the Bible. We just analyze it one verse at a time, and uh, this is our 47th sermon in the book of Genesis. We're up to Genesis um, chapter 21 today, but um, uh, we just started with Genesis 1-1, and we've gone one verse at a time analyzing the Bible and uh, speaking about what God intends for us as individuals from the Bible rather than applying our life to the Bible. So um, if you know people that want that type of a sermon, please bring them out here. And um, I uh, would like us to pray for Paul and Elaine Stoll. There are missionaries in Japan. I do understand uh, from Paul this week that he is not going to extend in Japan. 
and we've been wondering about that and uh, we support him from Church on the Beach here and uh, they are going to come back to Sarasota and uh, it's been a great year for them. They've led some people to the Lord, which is very difficult in Japan. I spent six years there. They're doing wonderful things and we just want to keep them in prayer for their final couple months before they return. And um, I uh, am not ashamed of saying this. I say it every single week and uh, I will say it again. We are not a 503C organization. We can say whatever we want, politically or otherwise. And um, the elections are coming up. And there is a political party which has completely departed from biblical Christianity. 100%. They have two issues in their platform, homosexuality, the homosexual agenda, and abortion, which are anti-biblical. They're not just unbiblical. They are against the Bible. So I would have you consider your moral choices when you go to vote that you would do the right thing and if you don't want to vote at all that's your choice if you want to pick the the green party check their platform first but i will say that the democrat party of the united states of america has departed from biblical morality and i would like anybody that has not seen this i saw it last night for the first time a lady came by and gave this to me if you are considering a vote for Barack Obama, I would like you to watch this. It is not in a, you know, a pejorative against him. There's nothing angry. It is completely different than what I expected in this movie. It is done by an Indian American who you couldn't tell isn't black any more than Barack Obama. They look identical. They have a similar background, and he contrasts the two lives. And it is invaluable to understand and know. So if anybody would like to watch this, please watch it and then pass it on to somebody else that may be wondering what they should do as far as their vote. This will help them to decide. I would ask you to do that and I'll leave it over there on the table. But anyway, uh, uh, those are the uh, announcements. I do have uh, one other thing. I got some flyers in this black bag. If anybody wants any flyers or anything, I always hand them out. I have to change 10.30 to 10 o'clock on them, but other than that, uh, they are in that bag. I didn't bring them out because of all the wind today. But um, Anyway, as I said, this is our 47th sermon in the book of Genesis, and we'll get to that in just a minute, but we'll do a New Testament reading today. We're going to read um, Romans 7, 13 through 25, and um, I'm trying to keep my voice up. I hope it's not too oppressive, but uh, I know it's very windy out here today because of the storm, but uh, what I do when I do the New Testament reading is I just simply start reading, and if something comes to my mind, then I, I just stop and analyze it real quickly. I don't get into any depth and I don't prepare for these simply because I want it to be spontaneous. But anyway, Romans 7.13 is where we're starting. Has then what is good become death to me? He's speaking about the law that was covered in the previous verses. Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. As I've said week after week, the law has two overarching purposes. The first is to show how utterly sinful sin is in our lives. And the second is to lead us to Jesus Christ because we recognize the sin. The law is God's standard and that is what people will be judged by. It will either be judged in Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law on our behalf or it will be judged in you. If you've told a lie, you've broken the law. The entire law is broken through one lie. So please keep that in mind is that the two overarching purposes of the law are to show us how sinful sin is and to lead us to Jesus Christ. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. 
The law is spiritual. It's God's standard. It is what is right. But I am carnal and I'm sold under sin because I can't meet the demands of this holy law. Verse 15, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. And I'd like all of you, as I'm reading the next few verses, to insert yourself into here. I read this time and time again, and I see Charlie Garrett all over it. I do things that I wish I didn't do. And the things that I want to do, I fail to do. Got my hair standing up because it's so true. So insert yourself into here what Paul is saying, comparing yourself to God's holy standard. Verse 16, if then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. I don't want to do these things, and yet I'm doing them. God is just. He's given us a law that shows us how sinful we are. Verse 17, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And that is obvious from the very first pages of the Bible. When man was created, he fell, and sin came into humanity through man. And we have all inherited Adam's sin. We don't even need to... uh, Heir in the law, we're already sinful because of Adam. And Jesus confirms that in John 3, 18. All right? Verse uh, 18, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. I don't want to kill anybody. I don't want to go do something that will get me thrown into jail. I delight in that. But it's the things that I don't delight in that I end up doing time and time and time again. And this is the state of man. And this is Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, chosen by God, saying he has the same conflict. So if you're facing this conflict in your own life, understand it's not unique to you. We all struggle with this precept. All right, verse, uh, I'm going to read 20 again. Now, if I will, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of good, according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's asking the question, I know that I'm fallen. I know that I've broken God's law. And who is going to deliver me from that body of death? And the next verse is so wonderfully beautiful, I could just shout it from the rooftops. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. I'm serving the law of sin in the flesh, but Jesus Christ has redeemed us from that law, and I can serve God through him, not on my own accord, but on his accord. What a great and wonderful testament that we have in what Jesus Christ has done for us. All right, let me uh, put this down real quickly. And I'll tell you what, instead of getting, uh, we'll do a little different order today. I'm going to read the 43rd Psalm, and then we'll do a couple other things and then get into the sermon. All right, the 43rd Psalm. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. 
O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man, for you are the God of my strength. Why do you cast me off? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And on the harp I will praise you, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. When people email me, and it happens almost every day with some problem in their life, I usually go back with the 43rd Psalm, and I quote those verses, and I explain that we're not going to find help and hope anywhere else except in Jesus. He's the one that quiets our soul. He's the one that brings us to the waters of rest. So anyway, if you're in a, a time of trouble or trial, go to the 43rd Psalm, read it, and I'm sure that it will help you as well. And what we're going to do, I, I, I've kind of gotten out of track today, and the reason why is because of something that's coming up at the very end of the, uh, this day in history. Okay, so I know it's a little bit jumbled. I'm usually a little more uh, organized. But what we're going to do before we get into the sermon, which is Genesis 21, verses 22 through 34, entitled The Well of the Seven, we're going to do this day in history, which we do every single week. On this day in history, in 1636, Harvard College was founded in Massachusetts. The original name was the Court of Massachusetts Bay Colony. Okay, it was the first school of higher education in the United States of America. And it was founded specifically for a reason. It was founded in order to train up ministers to go into this new world and to preach the gospel. That is the intent behind it. And as you know, if you follow Harvard at all, there's very little of that going on. It's mostly anti-God professors and philosophy that's being taught there. Back in uh, 1636, they required that everybody knew Hebrew and Greek if you graduated from there. It was a theological seminary with the intent of honoring God and the person of Jesus Christ. Anyway, in 1793, Eli Whitney, Eli Whitney applied for a patent for his cotton gin. Now, I don't know if this is true, but I was told that the cotton gin actually added to the need for slaves in America. And the reason why is because all of a sudden, what used to take hours and hours and hours to get just a very little bit of cotton could suddenly you could have hundreds of pounds of cotton processed in almost no time at all and so they needed slaves to plant these cotton plants and to uh, keep the, the plantations going as they pick cotton all the time and so what is good actually turned into an evil thing and so we have this kind of dichotomy of what's going on in the world it's kind of what Paul talked about you know what is good for me it's evil and vice versa uh, but it's kind of interesting that uh, 1793, this is when the uh, cotton gin was uh, made by uh, Eli Whitney. In 1886, the Statue of Liberty was dedicated by President Grover Cleveland, and it was originally known as Liberty Enlightening the World. It weighed 225 tons and 152 feet tall. And then in uh, 1919, Congress enacted the Volstead Act, which is also known as the National Prohibition Act. And that act actually brought about a real problem with um, the perception of Christians in America. Because whether you drink or not is irrelevant. Okay, It is not a biblical precept to say that people shouldn't drink. There's nothing in the Bible that teaches that. There is something about being uh, uh, proper in your conduct. There is something about uh, not being drunk. But there's nothing in the Bible that says you are not to drink alcohol or, partic or to participate in uh, the drinking of alcohol. But what that has done is that's brought about 
um, some real problems in the perception of Christianity. And uh, that was repealed in uh, 1933 with the passing of the 21st Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which shows that our Constitution is a wonderful document because it can overcome things that happen in the uh, course of the nation's history that we think are right, and then we find out they're wrong. And so we have a way and a means of taking care of these things. And uh, in 1965, Pope Paul VI did something that astonishes me. It is one of the most arrogant things that I have ever seen anybody from any denomination ever do. And the Catholic Church in particular, but other denominations do this as well, is they meddle in things that they have no idea what they're meddling in. They have no authority over God's Word, and yet they assume authority over God's Word in many different ways. They did it with this. Pope Paul VI issued a decree absolving Jews of collective guilt for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The fact is that every human being on earth, Jew and Gentile alike, is responsible for our Lord being nailed to the tree. There's no collective responsibility in the nation of Israel. There's no collective responsibility in the Gentile people of the world. There is collective responsibility in all people of the world. And here they are passing something that is it's an irrelevant piece of paper because God decides who is saved through the blood of Jesus Christ, not the Catholic Church. And they don't decide who's responsible for the cross. God decides that. Anyway, I just am, I'm astonished at that. Now, uh, one other thing that happened on this day in 1936, Charlie Daniels, if you know who he is, he was born. I met him right across the road at the uh, pub over there when I was about uh, 14 or 15 years old. He was out here for a, uh, a gig, and uh, he's the great violinist and, uh, 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 you know, just a, a wonderful musician. But he was born on this day in 1936, which happens to be the exact same day and the same year that my mother was born, 1936, 28 October. And so that's why I've gotten all out of whack today with our schedule is because um, I, I got a cake over here. My brother and I got a, a, a cake for her, and we want to invite anybody that would like some. And I don't want anybody to leave here without eating some because that's why it's here. She's not going to take it home. And if she does, she's not going to eat it. So please, somebody get out the knife. And I've got plates. I've got napkins. I've got all that kind of stuff over here. Please just be nice to my... I'm not going to embarrass her with a happy birthday song. If you want to do that, go ahead and, and sing her a song or wish her a happy birthday or give her a hug or a kiss. But please have that cake and understand that this is the woman that brought my brother here and I and, uh, into the world. And she's the grandmother of my son who just showed up. And uh, uh, I just... I love my mother and I just thank her for, uh, for raising us the way she did. And there's some flowers over here for you as well. Just so you know, those are for you. But uh, enough of that. We love you. Happy birthday to you, all right? All right, so today's sermon, as I said, is Genesis 21. It's verses 22 through 34. It's called the Well of the Seven. And we're going to learn about the importance of oaths and agreements and see how God watches over them even thousands of years after they're enacted, all right? Every oath that we take and every vow that we make as individuals is done in the presence of God and therefore they are as binding as if they are made directly with him. Now, I want to assure you that today's verses may not seem as exciting to you as some others that we've gone through in the book of Genesis, but they are as important as any other. They are very important and they are important in today's world, as you're going to see. It's astonishing how important and relevant the verses that we're going to go through are. 
So let's do our best to take heed to them as we live in the presence of the Lord and as followers of Jesus Christ. Our text verse for today comes from Deuteronomy. It's chapter 10 and the 20th verse. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. Now some people believe, based on Jesus' words in the gospel accounts, that we should make no oaths at all. If anybody knows what I'm talking about, he says, you're not to swear by heaven because it's the Lord's footstool, and you're not to swear by uh, Jerusalem because it's the city of the great king, and don't swear upon anything on the altar, and he goes on with this, and he tells us not to swear in that manner. And he says, but simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. And what he's trying to say is that as a follower of Jesus Christ, we are to speak and people are to accept at face value. We're not supposed to be making all these crazy oaths on things that are irrelevant when our word should stand all alone in his presence, okay? But that is a misreading of Jesus' words when, he said, when people say we're not to take any oaths at all, such as uh, I know people that say they won't swear on the Bible in a courtroom because that's an oath and Jesus said to don't do that. That is a misreading. When we make oaths, we are not to swear on anything other than the Lord's name. A vow and an oath is not to be taken in any other context except the Lord's name. Any vow or any oath which is taken under a lesser authority will ultimately diminish his glory in our perception of him, and it's actually an act of idolatry. I swear on my mother's grave. What you have done is you have elevated your mother's grave above the Lord. If you swear upon the stars, if you swear upon anything in creation, you are diminishing his glory in your eyes and in the eyes of the people that are uh, facing those oaths. And so because of this, may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Now, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read you the verses from Genesis so that you're not lost if you've never been here before. And some of what I'm gonna talk about is gonna rely on previous sermons. So you may be a little bit lost, but I'm gonna go ahead and read you those, those verses. Before I do though, I wanna let you know that I have some cough drops over here. As a matter of fact, Dave is getting them right now because this red tide is very bad. And if I start coughing, I apologize, but those are here for anybody, just pass them around. They should help you with the red tide. All right, here we go. Genesis 21, starting with the 22nd verse. And it came to pass that at that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring or with my posterity, but that according to the kindness that I have done to you, you will do to me in the land which you have dwelt. And Abraham said, I will swear. Then Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor had I heard of it until this day. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. And Abraham set, a ewe lamb, set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. Then Abimelech asked Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs, which you have set by themselves? And he said, you will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, that they may be witness that I have dug this well. Therefore, he called that place Beersheba, because the two of them swore an oath there. Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. So Abimelech rose with Phicol, the commander of the army, 
and they returned to the land of the Philistines. Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. Now our first thought of this sermon today is Abraham's bow. In the coming verse, the first thing we need to do is to determine when it actually occurs. This is verse 22. And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham saying, God is with you in all you do. Now there are three possibilities as to when this guy Abimelech came to Abraham. The first is way back in chapter 20. At that time, Sarah was taken into Abimelech's home, kind of into his harem, and he was going to make her his wife, all right? If that is when this occurred, then it would skip over both the birth and the weaning of Isaac, which was two sermons ago, and it would also skip over the life of Ishmael, which included him being kicked out of Abraham's camp and then going out into the wilderness and eventually growing up to be an archer. The second possibility is that it was after the birth of Isaac, around the time of the feast when he was weaned. And the third is that it happened much later when Ishmael was already grown up. This is very important to understand why, as you'll see in a little while. The first option that when it was back three sermons ago in uh, the time that Sarah was taken into Abimelech's home, that option is unlikely because after that there is a progression of events which leads one thing right after another, right up until the time Ishmael and his mother leave their home. The third option, which is when Ishmael was all grown up and became an archer, is also unlikely. That's more of an addendum to the story and to the timeline to note that he had survived the ordeal with his mother in the wilderness and he grew up to be an archer. The most likely time from the context of this verse is the time around the feast of Isaac's weaning when Hagar and Ishmael were sent away. And the reason why this is likely is because by having the record of them being removed from the camp assures us that what is coming today is intended for the people who descend from Abraham through Isaac, but not through Ishmael. If Ishmael was living at the home at this time, there could be a claim by him and his descendants on what is coming in the future. Now, I'm going to read the verse again to you so you have the proper context. It says, And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all you do. The king of Gerar, his name is Abimelech, had already interacted with Abraham in the matter of Sarah, his wife, when he took her into his harem. But now he comes along with the commander of his army to make a formal treaty with Abraham. He says to Abraham at this time, God is with you in all that you do. It's something that God promised to Abraham when he first entered the promised land all the way back in Genesis 12. At that time, God said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. By this meeting with Abimelech, the Lord has fulfilled the promise to Abraham that he made all the way back in Genesis 12. It is as obvious to Abimelech as the nose on his face that God is looking out for him. And when he took Sarah into his harem, God came to him in a dream. And he said that he was a dead man for taking this man's wife because the man is a prophet. And he said, you had better return her to Abraham or your life is forfeit. 
Now, he's also fully aware of this very immense size of Abraham's camp. We've talked about this in the past. There would be thousands of people living in Abraham's camp. He's wealthy in people, in livestock, and in wealth. So now that he has heard that Abraham has had a son, and this son has lived through to the time of weaning, meaning that he is going, he's old enough to become the inheritor, that he is now able to take over the camp. Even if he's only three years old, he is going to survive. And Abimelech knows this, and anyone in the area would know it as well. And he's also aware of one other thing, that Abraham had already defeated four kings of the east. They came down and they attacked all of the land of Canaan. They took Abraham's nephew Lot captive, carried him back, and Abraham with his fighting men went and they had rescued Lot and destroyed the entire four armies, the commanders of the armies, the kings, and all of the people. All right, so God is with Abraham, and Abimelech comes to make a treaty now, before he dies. Once he's dead, as I said, Isaac is going to be the leader of this camp, and a new regime is going to be established, and it would be much, much easier for him to work with Abraham now, okay, before his son has grown up. He already knows him personally. Another question arises, though. Why did he bring along the commander of his army? He's mentioned by name, and therefore, God is telling us that this man is important for us to know. His name, Fee-Kol, means the mouth of all. Literally, that means he's strong, okay? Bringing him along does a couple of things. The first is that it will demonstrate that the pact to be made has the full support of all of the people of Abimelech. It also acknowledges Abraham's military superiority over him. Abraham's might was renowned, and bringing along this commander, whose name means strong, is implicitly saying that Abraham is stronger than he is. This is in line with what Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, or I'm sorry, chapter 14. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down and first consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace, which is what Abimelech is doing. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Abimelech may or may not be a believer in the true God but he is acknowledging that Abraham is superior to him in military power and that his God is more inclined to Abraham than anybody else, including him. Now, before we go on to the next verse, we should probably evaluate our own lives and see if we're willing to heed what Jesus himself is saying in the verses I just gave you from Luke. Jesus Christ is the commander of the strongest army that there is. And so we should be brave enough to stand up for our personal convictions and not let others come to us and wield over us. We should have them sue for peace, not us. Any Christian who is not willing to speak up for his faith and for the truth of the message of Jesus Christ is neither properly executing nor is he worthy of the title of Christian. So please keep that in mind. If you're not willing to speak out for Christ, you're not worthy of that title. Whether the people around us acknowledge that or not is irrelevant. I just want all of you to have the assurance that when you speak in the name of Jesus Christ, you have the confidence to do it and not waffle in your convictions. Let's go on to verse 23. 
Now therefore swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring or with my posterity, but that according to the kindness that I have done to you, you will do to me in the land in which you have dwelt. However Abimelech knows it, he knows that Abraham isn't going to just be a powerful leader and then fade away, but that his line is going to continue on forever. And because of this, he asked for him to speak not only for himself, but also for his son and all of his generations after him. What he is asking here for is something called the lex talionis. That means an eye for an eye in Latin. What kindness or what evil I show to you, you will return to me. All right. What I think about this particular account and several others that come in the Bible, and I assure you that it's correct, it may not be popular with you depending on how you perceive the nation of Israel, but I assure you that this is a correct analysis of what I'm going to tell you. This covenant that is made between Abimelech and Abraham is as binding today as the day it was made. And I'm going to justify this as we go on. It seems to be written on the Jewish mind in their actions even now. I don't care, I do not care one little bit what the rest of the people think about the nation of Israel. I couldn't care at all. They never, never act as the aggressors in their treatment of the Palestinians around them. It is always in response to what the Palestinians do to them. And they are holding up this treaty that is written on their mind. I'm gonna read you a couple examples that center right on the area that we're talking about. It's the area of Beersheba in Israel. I'm going to go back a couple years and I'm just going to give you a few examples. On August 31st, 2004, 16 were killed in two suicide bombings on buses in Beersheba for which Hamas claimed responsibility. On August 28, 2005, another suicide bomber attacked a central bus station, seriously injuring two security guards and 45 bystanders. During Operation Cast Lead, which began on December 27, 2008, Hamas fired multiple Grad rockets from Gaza into Beersheba. On almost every occasion in their history, Israel has responded to attacks on the people that they have covenanted with. They do not actively go out and attack them first. In the Bible and in modern history, when this is not the case, the Lord will see and the Lord will act. And I'm going to give you an example right out of the Bible to justify this. It comes from 2 Samuel chapter 21. Here's what it says. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord. And the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house because he killed the Gibeonites. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and of Judah. Now I want to tell you what happened. This is after the people were brought out of Egypt and then the wanderings in the wilderness and then they went into the land of Canaan which God had told them to now subdue. And that was in response to what God had told Abraham 400 years earlier that the sin of the Amorites had not yet reached its fullness. God was being merciful on the inhabitants of the land calling them and asking them to repent. And they didn't and God knew they wouldn't and so he used his instrument of destruction which is Israel to go in and wipe out these people in the land. So he's being merciful even in his time of waiting. They go into the land and they start destroying the cities around them. And these people from Gibeon see what's going on and they say, we are going to be destroyed unless we do something. So what they did is they made a deceitful plan to 
fool the Israelites into making a covenant. They said, they came to the Israelites and they said, we come from a long, long distance and we want to make a treaty with you. And Joshua said to them, well, how do we know you came from a great distance away? And they said, well, when we left, our sandals were new and now they're all worn out. And when we left, our clothes were all clean and now they're all stinky. And when we left, our, our bread was fresh and now it's molded. All right, they're going through and showing them all the things, this great travel that they made, when in fact they just got a bunch of old moldy bread and they got some old sandals. They deceived them. And Joshua failed to check with the Lord. Instead, he said, okay, we'll make a treaty with you. Come to find out they're their next door neighbors. But God watched over that treaty. And over 400 years later, King Saul started killing these Gibeonites. And God said, I am not going to tolerate this. My people have made a covenant with the, is it with the Gibeonites and they are going to stand by that covenant. I got to tell you what, this is a lesson that we all need to remember as individuals and also as a nation. When we sign a contract of peace with a group of people, it is as binding on us as this one right here and it is not to be dismissed by us first, only in retaliation for an aggression against us. And the reason why I bring that up is because there are only two nations in the history of the world that have been established on a covenant with the true God. One is Israel, and that was when God made a covenant with them. The other is the United States of America when we established a covenant with him. It's the only two nations in the world that have ever done this, and we are bound to our treaties and our agreements with the people that we've covenanted with. Now, I will tell you that Barack Obama a couple years ago said that this is not a Christian nation, and that is in direct violation of what the Supreme Court ruled in the Trinity decision of the 1890s. Their ultimate uh, decision after 10 years of research, usually what do they do? About 30 minutes of talking it out and then they do a couple months of research and they make their decision. This went on for 10 years and studying the founding documents and they said this is a Christian nation and that has never been overturned or changed by the U.S. Supreme Court and therefore it is the law of the land. In other words, Jesus Christ, his name is on this nation. And if we have a treaty with another country, we are obligated to that. And I bring that up because does anybody know where Kuwait is? Has you, have you ever heard of Kuwait and what happened to them? And remember all the people that said how terrible it was that we went in and we pushed Iraq back out of Kuwait? We had a treaty with those people. If we did not fulfill that treaty that we had signed with Kuwait and take care of our promises as we did, the rest of the world would have said, listen, we got a treaty with them too, and it is worthless. And secondly, God would have judged us for not favoring the treaty that we had signed with these people. We need to not make knee-jerk reactions about wars. There are some wars that are valid, and there are some wars that are not valid. But we need to go to the heart of the matter to determine whether we are just in that war or not just in that war. And I can tell you this, when I was stationed in uh, Malaysia, I worked for the U.S. Embassy at that time, and the Malaysians were the last nation on the Security Council at that time to approve the uh, use of war for us to go in and move Iraq out of there. And of course, a lot of Mo uh, uh, Malaysians, because it's a Muslim nation, protested this. And they went in and they threw things at the embassy and they made this big stink about us going in and attacking their fellow Muslims. And I assure you that after that war, when Kuwait came through, they went through every Arab nation in the world and they put up all of the photos of what the Iraqis had done to the Kuwaitis. And those Malaysians were appalled and they were so sorry for having protested America at that time because we did the right thing. And if you saw those photos of what the Iraqis did to those Kuwaiti people, you wouldn't believe it.
It was horrifying, worse than anything you've ever seen in your life. And they were out in all the malls, all over Malaysia, showing us these things. It was astonishing. Anyway, we'll go on to verse 24. And Abraham said, I will swear. In Genesis 15, God told Abraham that it would be 400 more years before he would take possession of the land. And he had two reasons, therefore, to agree to this covenant. The first is that Abimelech came to him on friendly and on submissive terms. And second, by such an agreement, in a land which he does not even own, he's receiving a guarantee of safety. This would be like making an agreement with your own landlord. He comes to you with his lawyers, and he says, I know that God is with you in everything you do, and I want to prosper by God's hand through you. So, would you be willing to live in this house for free, you and any of your descendants after you who want to live here for the next 400 years, and I'll pay all of the bills, and I'll throw in a security system too? What would you say? I assure you that Abraham agreed too. The agreement is made, and it will be confirmed in a covenant. Abraham's word here is Ishaba. I will swear. And it's the same root word as the number seven in Hebrew, which is Sheba. An oath of this type will be confirmed in the, a rite involving the number seven. That brings us to our second thought today, which is, oh, well. Before you sign those lawyer's papers, you want to clear up a real small problem. He comes to you, and so he is obviously willing to bargain, and he wants this deal to go through. And so now, right now, is the very best time for you to come up with any complaints you have with your landlord. On the back of the property that he wants to give you for 400 years, there's a big shed that you built. The landlord's employees have been coming onto your property and they've been filling it with all of their stuff. Before you sign the papers, you want your shed and you want it left alone. Abraham has his own terms that he wants settled before he confirms the oath with Abimelech. Verse 25, then Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had seized. Water is where it's at in Israel. If you've never been there, you can't fully appreciate this, especially in this well-watered Florida. But if you want to see what it's like, go onto the internet and type in the word Beersheba, and you're going to see a couple things. You're going to see sand, you're going to see rocks, and you're going to be able to feel the heat shimmering off of that photo. There are two rainy seasons in the land of Israel. One is known as the former rains and the other is known as the latter rains. They fall in the, the uh, fall and also in the spring. In the off seasons or during any season where the rain doesn't come, a well is the only source of water for irrigation, for people to drink, and to water your animals. Abraham is more concerned about this well than any other part of the meeting and it will be a continued source of trouble if it doesn't get settled. So Abimelech's servants are going to need to leave this well alone or this oath is going to have very unhappy hints associated with it. We come to verse 26. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor had I heard of it until today. This verse right here shows us the very gracious nature of Abraham for a couple of reasons. The first is that Abraham agreed to the oath even before the issue of the well was brought up. And secondly, Abimelech was never told in the past about what was going on. Abraham had the power to take the well back by force. He had this great mighty force and he could have kept it guarded as well. 
but instead he graciously kept this matter concealed. Abimelech is hearing about it for the very first time. And I like what the Geneva Bible says about this particular verse. It says, wicked servants do many evils unknown to their masters. And you're gonna find this is true many times in the Bible. If you know the story of King David, he had this very, very loyal commander of his army. The guy's name was Joab. But Joab did a lot of crazy things. He did a lot of things that upset David. And it cost him his life in the end. Should you be a boss? You know this already, that your employees do not always make the very best decisions. Abimelech is going back to Abraham, and he is going to be just as gracious as Abraham has been to him, though. In the end, this covenant is going to go forward, and it will last as a testament to the congenial meeting between these two great men. Verse 27, so Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. In verse 23, it was Abimelech who asked for the agreement. And in verse 24, Abraham agrees to the covenant. Abraham is the one who offers the animals because he is the one who is granting the request. He took sheep and oxen and he gave them to Abimelech, the Bible says. Abraham provides the animals. Abimelech is the one to slaughter the animals and then he cuts them right down the middle, cuts them in two, and they put the pieces off side by side. After they do that, both of these men will walk through the pieces of the animals and the covenant will be sealed. The significance of this particular rite is that if either party breaks the agreement in this covenant, they are saying that we will be treated in the same manner as the animals that they pass through. That's the significance of this type of an agreement. This dead animal is what I will be if I violate this covenant, okay? Verse 28. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flocks off by themselves. Some scholars, and I've read several commentaries as I was getting ready for this, they say that these animals were the ones that were sacrificed and that the sheep and the oxen and the other animals mentioned earlier were gifts to Abimelech. That's not correct. It doesn't make any sense and it's exactly the opposite. So if that's what your study Bible says, put a big X through that part because they're wrong. We're going to see that. The terminology before and after this verse indicates that the seven lambs are a witness to the covenant, not the sign of it. All right, verse 29. Then Abimelech asked Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you have set off by yourselves? Abimelech, he's standing there and he's looking at these seven cute, fluffy little ewe lambs and wondering what they mean. The animals for the sacrifice have already been slaughtered and they've been divided up, and all of a sudden, Abraham walks up with seven more little ewe lambs. He's probably there scratching his head, or maybe he's pulling on the beard that I no longer have, and he's wondering what is going on. We come to verse 30, and he said, you will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, that they may be a witness that I have dug this well. I've been to this place, I've been there with her. I've looked right down this well. The well is still there to this day, but the lambs are not. So I want to ask you a question. Where is the proof that Abraham actually gave the seven ewe lambs to Abimelech? And where is the proof that Abimelech actually accepted the lambs? Can anybody tell me that? The proof is in the document that we're reading right now. As the, le the noted legal scholar, his name is Simon Greenlee. He's the principal founder of Harvard Law School. He states this, every document appearing ancient coming from the proper repository or custody 
and bearing on its face no evident marks of forgery, the law presumes to be genuine and devolves on the opposing party the burden of proving it to be otherwise. It's important to remember this because there are copies of the Bible which go well back into antiquity and they predate any other claims on this well or on any other biblical sites that are coming into contestation in modern times. I want to tell you that we have a Greek copy of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint and it predates Jesus Christ by a couple of hundred years. We have the New Testament which the oldest copies of that go back to about the year 115. It's the um, uh, John Ryland's Papyrus which is a part of the Gospel of John. We have these that go all the way back to the very first century for the New Testament. The Hebrew of the Old Testament, the oldest known Hebrew document up until a certain point in time was about a thousand years old. I think it's called the Ben Asher text. Went to about the year 1000 AD. All right. But something happened in 1947, one year before this land went back to Israel, that was astonishing how God keeps his word. They found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And guess what? It wasn't found by Jews. It was found by Arabs. They found these documents and they have now a copy of every book of the Old Testament in the original Hebrew with the exception of Ruth. Now some of them are only fragments. Some of them are almost the entire scroll, such as the book of Isaiah. But they are the proper documentation. They bear on their face no evidence of forgery and therefore the law presumes them to be genuine. And now it devolves on the opposing party to show the burden of proof of proving that they're wrong. In other words, God has preserved his word and this document that we're looking at today is of critical importance. It might seem like a side issue, but God has recorded this deed and we need to take heed to it. Just as all of the other deeds that are in the Bible. People argue over Israel's right to the land. God doesn't. They argue over a Jewish presence on the Temple Mount. God doesn't. And I'll tell you something about the Temple Mount. There is one person that is alive today. One person. And he owns the Temple Mount. His name is Jesus and he is going to return and he's going to claim the right title to that. And it's coming soon. But his deed to that Temple Mount is recorded in the Bible. His forefather David bought it. It's recorded there. And he is the only living person on the face of the earth that has a genealogical record left because all of the Jewish records were destroyed in the temple with the exception of the Gospels of Mark and Luke. So they argue about the right to the Temple Mount. There's no need to because Jesus has the deed and we have it right in our hand if you just simply pick it up and read it. People even argue over the Jewish people's right to exist. And I got to tell you something, God doesn't argue over that either. Knowing the Bible is the most important tool that we have on the face of the earth to refute the baseless claims of people that say these things aren't so. The seven lambs that are offered by Abraham are a proof that he dug the well. And they implicitly state that the land around that well was for his use. If Abimelech accepts the lambs, then what is implicit becomes explicit. Remember, it was Abimelech in the preceding chapter, chapter 20 of Genesis, that he said these words. See, my land is before you. Dwell wherever it pleases you. The deed stands. Verse 31, therefore he called the place of the, that place Beersheba because the two of them swore an oath there. Therefore, 
and I say this every time that word comes up, when you see the word therefore in the Bible, you always go back and you look at what it is there for. We're reminded to think on the previous verses of today's sermon and come to a conclusion or accept one that has been made. So we're going to review. Abimelech and Phicol came to Abraham. They acknowledged that God is with him and all that he does, and they ask him to swear by his God that he will not deal falsely with him, his son, or his descendants, and that there will be an established agreement based on the lex talionis, an eye for an eye, if that agreement is broken. Abraham agrees, and after his agreement, he brings up the subject of the well. Abimelech says he has no knowledge of the problem, and Abraham takes animals for a sacrifice to cut a covenant. He also sets aside seven ewe lambs as a witness that he dug the well. If Abimelech agrees to this, the covenant will be sealed. Therefore, because of all of these things, the well is called Beersheba. Why is the naming of this place the conclusion of the matter and the reason for our therefore? The word in Hebrew for therefore is al. It can mean wherefore, it can mean therefore, it can mean so, it can mean and, but it is used to demonstrate a result. Therefore, the result of the things that we talked about is the name Beersheba. The word Be'er means well. The verb Sheba means an oath. Therefore, the result is the well of the oath. But the root of Sheba, as I said, also means seven. Therefore, the result of this contract is the well of the seven. Now, I'm not going to explain today what the significance of the well of the seven is. I'll get to that in another sermon. But this is why it's named Beersheba. It's signifying that this covenant was made between these two people. The therefore is that the well and all of the surrounding area is called Beersheba. And that the name came from this oath. The oath is the grant and the name is the testament to that grant. Who owns this land? It is the descendants of Abraham through Isaac, but not Ishmael and not any other people on the face of the earth. As I said, the deed stands. We come to our third and final thought today. The Lord, the everlasting God. Verse 32, thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. So Abimelech rose with Bekol, the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. Both agreed, Abraham and Abimelech, and so the covenant is confirmed, and it's done, as this verse says, at Beersheba. The inclusion of the name given in this verse is specifically here to demonstrate that it came from this account. The fact that the name of this place has lasted for over 4,000 years tells us that God is carefully watching over his land and he is demonstrating the significance of these accounts in his word. As the Palestinians continue their assault against Israel, every single time that they do, they violate this ancient covenant which came between these two people. The reason why is because the word Palestine comes from the Hebrew word plishtim, which we translate as Philistine. The people cannot claim the title Palestine without claiming the obligation to that title. In other words, it goes all the way or it doesn't go at all. Hence, the town of Beersheba is in the news today and it's going to continue to be in the news until these wicked people will learn to make peace with their Jewish brethren. 
The history of this place, Beersheba, is very rich, and it's going to be mentioned many, many more times in the Bible. And it will eventually become synonymous with the very southern spot of the land of Israel. This is the spot where Jacob, right before he went off to Egypt, he was going to die down in Egypt seeing his beloved Joseph again. It's the spot where he stopped and he sacrificed to God and God appeared to him. And then off to Egypt he went. And from that point, it would be hundreds of years before the Israelites came back into this land. But guys, God's eyes never stopped watching this place called Beersheba. Verse 33, then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and there called on the name of the Lord the everlasting God. Verse 33 introduces a couple of interesting terms and a pile of debate. Abraham planted, according to the New King James Version, a tamarisk tree. Some uh, translations will say an oak tree. If you read the old King James Version, it says a grove. The term is a shell, and it's used only two other times in the Old Testament. Both times, a tree, not a field, is being referred to. And so, it seems that a tree is what's being referred to here as well. So study your Bibles, make your conclusions. I go with the tree and not a grove because it seems what Abraham is doing is he's tying in planting a tree with calling on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. It's the first time in the Bible that this term is used. El Olam, Jehovah El Olam. He is the eternal one. He is unchangeable and therefore he is sure and he is able to watch over the covenant that these two people have made. Because of this, Abraham plants a tree, which is a symbol to men of permanence and of reliability. As my brother, this guy right here said to me years ago, and I've always remembered this, he heard a quote and he told it to me. He said, the definition of an optimist is a person who plants a tree. A grove gives neither the thought of permanence nor reliability. It gives just the opposite because it's being plowed year after year. But the Bible says otherwise about a tree. When Isaiah, in chapter 6, the Lord is speaking to Isaiah, he's told to uh, proclaim the Lord's word to the people of Israel. They're stubborn, they're dull-eared. And he says, tell them to just keep on hearing but never listening and keep on seeing but never perceiving. And eventually Isaiah, he says, how long, Lord? How long am I supposed to do this? And the Lord answers, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will remain in it and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or an oak whose stump remains when it's cut down. So the holy seed shall be its stump. Despite Israel's unfaithfulness, despite their stiff necks and their unwillingness to hear, God promises to preserve a teeny remnant of the people and they will be as the stump of the tree which will sprout again at the scent of water. Abraham has planted a tree acknowledging God's faithfulness and his permanence. It's as if he looks down through time and he sees the future of his own people and he's, he's acknowledging God's sovereignty over them and his eternal faithfulness to them even when they nail his own son to a tree. Concerning this treaty between Abraham and Abimelech and their descendants after them, it is El Olam, Jehovah El Olam, who will vindicate the just and who will judge the unjust who breaks this agreement. He is Abraham's infallible source of rest 
and of peace. In Ecclesiastes 3, we read these words about God. It says, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. The form and the appearance of the things around us may change, but what God determines is permanent and it is everlasting. Nothing that God decides can be frustrated and nothing that he decides can be hindered. Even though a tree is a temporary thing, Abraham is planning it because in itself it is a shadow of something that is eternal and it is unchanging. And one more little tidbit about this verse for you. At the beginning of this chapter, way back in verse 1, which was two sermons ago, when the Lord visited Sarah and brought about the conception of Isaac, two sermons ago, as I said, the name of Jehovah was mentioned. It hasn't been mentioned again through this entire account until now, 32 verses later. Through Isaac's weaning, through the sending away of Hagar and Ishmael into the wilderness, and through this entire account about Abimelech, only the term God is used. And this is because of the relationship between the people in those accounts and God. It was a general one. It wasn't an intimate one. But his relationship with Sarah, when she's the mother of Isaac, bringing in the promised son, and his relationship with Abraham, who is the man of faith and calls on the name of the Lord, we see this covenant-based relationship. And so the chapter begins and it ends with the divine name Jehovah. It is this name which will last as and be a symbol of communion between God and man until the incarnation of Jesus Christ. This is how life was intended to be. Back in the garden when man was created, it was the Lord Jehovah who appeared to him in the garden and he walked with him. But since then, he only appears at certain times and for specific reasons in redemptive history. The intimacy between God and man is all but gone and it can only be restored if we follow his rules. Once we do though, Paul explains in the New Testament what that intimacy is like. This is from the book of Romans chapter eight. He says, for as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Verse 34, and Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. This is the last verse of chapter 21 and it is given to us to show us God's faithfulness to Abraham. After the treaty, after the calling on his name as the Lord, the everlasting God, we see that this same God is both capable and willing to provide for Abraham, even in the land of the Philistines. This verse here implies that there were no disputes over the well by Abimelech or any of his people, and that otherwise would have necessitated Abraham moving away from the area. Before we leave today's passage behind, though, we should reflect on this personally. We've learned today that this particular chapter is about as much about oaths as about anything else. And some of us here have taken an oath, for example, in marriage. I will tell you this that God looks at that oath that you made in marriage in the same light that he looks at the oath between Abimelech and Abraham 4,000 years ago, which he is still watching over and he is still looking for faithfulness in. And it's the same with our covenant of marriage. And he's also looking over our other oaths as well. 
He's looking over things that we have sworn to. This includes, for example, buying a car. You make a loan agreement, he is asking you to be responsible in that oath. If you buy a house, you're signing your name and you're saying I'm a Christian and you're signing your name. Now his name is on that oath. When you testify in a courtroom or when you witness any other transaction, God watches over these things and he expects full and complete compliance in them. If we are truly Abraham's children, then we are children of the Lord. And so we need to be confident and we need to be faithful to represent him in everything that we do. Now, if you've never become a children, a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ, let me explain this just very quickly. Just give me one or two minutes to tell you how you can do that. The Bible says, as we talked about earlier when we looked at Romans 7, that we have sinned. All of us have sinned, and God has a standard by which we will be judged. If we commit one sin against that standard, that standard is broken. If you lie, the entire law of Moses is broken, and you will be judged by that one lie. And it means eternal separation from God, because a finite sin committed against an infinite God infinitely separates you from that God. And so something had to occur to restore us to him. And what God did is he stepped out of eternity and he united with human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. He's fully God. He's fully man. He didn't inherit Adam's sin because he was born of the Holy Spirit and not of a man. He was born through a woman. The sin transfers through the man. And so now he is qualified to replace us if he can only fulfill the law as well. And the Bible records that he did. He fulfilled the law that you and I cannot fulfill. And then he gave his life up as a sacrifice of payment for what we have done wrong. And all that God asks us to do, it's not difficult. Paul writes it in the book of Romans. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That's all he wants you to do is just to simply say, I cannot save myself. I've separated myself from God and now I want to be restored. I hope that you will make that decision today and call on the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. All right. I, this really is very annoying over here, but I'm sorry. Anyway, um, I want to tell you before we finish up that uh, next week we're going to get into Genesis chapter 22. We're going to read only verses 1 through 8, and that's called By Faith Abraham. And that is an astonishingly beautiful story about Abraham being asked to sacrifice his own son up on Mount Moriah. And it leads us to a picture of Jesus Christ. So I hope that you can make it for that. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's going to take us a couple sermons to get through chapter 22. Anyway, um, before we take communion and before we have some birthday cake, I want to read you our poem of the week. I do one of these every single week, and uh, it's based on the verses that we just looked at, okay? This is called The Well of the Seven. And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Fecal, the commander of the army, spoke to Abraham what was on their mind. God is with you in all you do, and I see your life is farming. Now, therefore, swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my offspring. And with kindness, we will interact while in this life we trod. You will do to me as I to you. Please agree to this thing. And Abraham said, I will swear. Then he rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water. His ser servants had seized it without any care. It needed to be resolved before the animals they would slaughter. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You never told me, nor had I heard of it until today. So Abraham to Abimelech, sheep and oxen he did bring and gave them to him for a covenant display. 
And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock to the side. And Abimelech asked their meaning. And Abraham replied, You will take these seven lambs from my hand in order to tell as a witness that it was I who dug this watery well. Therefore he called that place Beersheba, because the two of them swore an oath there. Thus they made a covenant at a place that rhymes with Toshiba. Not much else does, so I had to put something there. So Abimelech rose with Phicol, the commander of his army, and they returned to the Philistines' land. They were hoping their life would also be quite barmy, and that God would bless them from his open hand. Then Abraham and Beersheba planted a tamarisk tree, and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And he stayed in that land many days, happy and carefree, because he was a man of faith, and faithfully he trod. Each of us enters into agreements and covenants too, and God ex expects us to obey them in all that we do. Let us be faithful to the contracts we sign and to the vows we make as we speak with our lips. God instructs us that this is his design. He's watching over us to make sure we don't make any slips. He is faithful to us in each and every way, and so we are to be like him each and every day. Let us be faithful to our husband or wife let us be honorable each day as we work. In every way, we need to live an integrity-filled life, not letting things slip like some kind of a jerk. God promised so very long ago that he would send his son to make all things right. Thankfully, he didn't change his mind and say no, because only through him can we see heaven's light. Great and awesome God, let us in thy light trod. Great and marvelous in all your ways, may which we return to you all of our praise. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful story of these two men who cut this covenant, and thank you for your faithfulness for watching over it even to this day, watching over your people Israel to ensure compliance, and watching over those who would do them harm to ensure compliance. You're a great God, and we know that even our own oaths and our own uh, vows that we make are just as binding, and we need to hold fast to them and be honorable in them. Help us each day to do this. Help us to walk in your light and to be responsible stewards of the word that you have given us. Help us, O Lord, because without you, we cannot do it. We thank you, we praise you. All glory, all majesty, all honor belong to you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.